Sue Ake. Stand forever. E nā iwi o te motu e nā parikāranga rangati e nei te mihi ki a tātou katoa. I'm Mariah Rakraku. And I'm Justin Murray. You're with Radio New Zealand's Kaupapa Māori programme, Te Ahika, offering up an exploration of things Māori. First up, we have Justine, who braves the wet weather in wafer-thin clothing. And let's not forget designer Ugg Boots to bring us a tour of a Māori farm that has beaten the odds to great success. If it was a fine day, you'd, you'd be able to see Mahia Peninsula. I can actually, oh, beautiful, yes. I can actually just see the top of it way in the distance, in the mist. Yep. And, yeah, if it was a bit clearer, you'd see Portland Island as well. Pretty nice office, Gary. Yeah, on a fine day it is, yeah. <laughs> From the vaults of Radio New Zealand archives, Ngā Taonga Kōrero features a man associated with bridging Māori and Pākehā worlds, Sir Hugh Kafaru. It's also an area very rich in uh, soils and uh, marine life and not least birds. In fact, the fish were so succulent and so abundant that uh, Ngāti Whātua referred to this part of uh, their tribal district in terms of being able to eat the fish, bones and all. How does an artist reflect language loss? Well, in their art, of course. I'm with Evelyn Kawiti, whose images of Māori school children from the mid-1800s portray how she feels about not having te reo Māori now. I feel quite happy being in mainstream, and I feel happy being in uh, te reo uh, Māori. I'm happy in both worlds. But then am I really happy? Because it's something I still don't know. (laughs) Well, that can be rectified. I can um, go to school and learn, which I have been trying to do and I have done. Uh, yes, I, I feel like I'm in the middle. That's what's coming up on Te Ahika. In pulling together the story for Te Ahika, we had to ask ourselves, what defines Māori farming? Is it a farm run by Māori for Māori beneficiaries, or one that focuses on kaupapa Māori? Here Here Tau Station, just like many other farming lands, has had to overcome its fair share of hurdles, blackberry infestations and poor soil fertility, as well as a dwindling shareholder base. Carrying a debt of $4,000, things began to change when wool prices rose, which meant the farm began making a tidy profit. The farm was turned from a liability to an asset, and with World War I veterans now on pensions at that time, funds were at the Māori trustee's disposal. And it was the forward thinking of the Māori trustee who, after meeting in 1952 at Waio Matitini, set up the Narimu Scholarship Fund. Moana Narimu no Ngātipurau was the first Māori soldier to receive the Victoria Cross after his death in the Second World War. With the other one being Willy Apiata. Ida. And to keep the scholarships going, Here Here Tau Station was bought and then leased out. Over $200,000 in scholarships have been allocated. In 1988, the Māori Trustee commissioned a review of the financial and operational performance of Here Here Tau Station, which led to imminent changes, including putting in place a new strategic plan and reviewing its goals and objectives. Enter Pete McKenzie and Gary Watson, the fellows in charge of the day-to-day operations at Here Here Tau Station. How do you want to handle today? It's a bit wet and yucky. We could take you up on top of the airstrip and get a good overview up there. Jacket? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I came so unprepared. No, don't. Right, I'm Just nice and cool. Where'd you stay last night? Three Oaks Motel in uh, Wairua. Oh, right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Come from Wairua. Oh, okay. Yeah, he, he, he showed that age is no barrier, and I heard, I heard some experts say, you know. Tell me about your role here at um, Hiri Hiri Tau. Um, well, my role in Hiri Hiri Tau, the 
uh, married trustee uh, hired a chap of the name of Ray Chapel some nine years ago to do a report on Hedi Hedi Tower. Um, and they pulled me in then as a farm supervisor to carry out um, the instructions in the Ray Chapel report. Yep. And uh, both Gary and myself came aboard then. And so, and that's my role here. I'm uh, a director um, of Lewis Road Limited in, in Gisborne. Um, and my role there is to supervise large stations in Wairau, Gisborne area. And um, Hedy Hedy Tower has become one of those. And um, yes, we over the last nine years we've picked Hedy Hedy Tower up. We've improved the infrastructure on the main block. And um, from there, to three years ago, we went out and brought the next door neighbour's property, 480 hectares. And um, so we're just stabilising the, um, the debt at the moment, getting the debt down to a level where uh, maybe we can uh, pounce again with a very strong balance debt. So we're repaying our debt quite rapidly. Yes. Along with um, maintaining the property at a, at a high level. So. They're our goals, and I'll let you out here and open the gate. <laughs> yeah. Part of being the passenger. Oh. And we've got Gary Watson, who is on the uh, quad bike. Now, Gary Watson is the... Gary Watson is the farm manager and the most important man on the farm. Um, Gary's got a very good team around him, Paul Te'ahu. Been here for some 19 years, Paul. So we've picked Paul up from the old management and looked after him, and he's going well. And at the moment we're just changing over our um, the other shepherd and we're looking for another young shepherd to, to work with the team. So it's a really team-based farm, um, starting from John Pucky, the married trustee, and then to Vince Conley, who's the married trustee's eyes and ears. Vince works out of Wellington, and I report directly to him. And then myself as a farm supervisor, and then to Gary. So, and that puts us apart from the other Marion corporations. Um, we have a very uh, fluid uh, management team. We can move very quickly on our feet, make different management decisions, um, whereas the incorporations tend to go through the management committee uh, situations and um, it tends to slow it down a little bit. So, so do you have shareholders? No, not as such. Um, the shareholder is the Maori trustee. Yes. And he's got full... Um, Autonomy. Yes, oh. full management control over the property. It's held in trust for the Maori Soldiers Fund. Um, and that's our prime objective here, is to, to create a revenue base so we can um, fund the Maori uh, Soldiers Fund, which is there basically now for... Uh, educational purposes. So in the last five years we've um, handed out 225000 to that fund and it's up to them to um, distribute the scholarships to the married people throughout New Zealand. Well, that's really positive giving back, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, as I said to the married soldiers the other day that um, we have to protect this asset here a huge asset, we have to grow it, and in doing that, uh, the future of the fund looks very positive. I mean, we could, there's no reason why we can't put 100,000 into that fund year on year. Hmm. Can you, what can you tell me about the Māori Soldiers um, Trust, Pete? Well, the Māori Soldiers Trust was set up uh, for the returned soldiers from the First World War. Um, we've only got one beneficiary left, I think, now. Um, she's a lady, I'm not too sure where, where she's based. I think she might be Napier-based. Um, so the Act, the Mary Soldiers Act, um, needs to be redefined in some way. Um, that's, I think they're working on that at the moment. Um, but at this stage, the Maori soldiers are quite adamant that the descendants of the First World War veterans, um, 
they can flock a papa back to that, then they're eligible. Oh, for, for, for scholarships. Scholarships, yeah. yeah. Um, whether they're going to make that more wider is up, up to to them, but but at the stage that's uh, the decision that they've made. Mm. So, um, yeah, and the, of, of the Soldiers Fund, I mean, the, the old soldiers themselves are, are dying off fairly rapidly yeah, now. Yeah, saw and them think, on the night of the Ahuwhenua. Yes, and we've only got really one there that's um, from the Maori Battalion, um, and the rest, um, you know, have, have um, fought in Malaysia, and um, I'm not too sure how they're selected. They're, they're selected in each individual uh, part of New Zealand, um, but they're fine people, and um, uh, we put put them on the station on Thursday, and they really um, thought the station was magnificent. And they're standing behind Vince and, and, and John Pucky. So where are we now? So we are on the airstrip of Hedi Hedi Tower, and we're looking north, or looking south in actual fact, down to Napier. And we're looking, this hill country in front of us here is the, um, the new block that we've purchased, 440 hectares. Our hectare is 2.475 acres. And the homestead down there and the trees and the Aitchison uh, woolshed. So we call it the Aitchison block, the new block. And one of the reasons we bought it was that the old station had a very old homestead and we were faced with building a new homestead. So instead of do, doing that, we brought the next door farm with a good homestead on it. And it's given us northerly aspect. On a day like this, you can appreciate that. It would be much warmer over there, sitting mm. in the gullies, than, than on the airstrip here. So if we just get outside yep. and... Um, Is it an average day for you today, Gary? Oh, no, it's uh, <laughs> pretty cold with a subtly screaming in here today, yeah. And what kind of, I mean, what does, tell us what kind of gears you have to wear on a day like this. Well, I don't like this. As you can see, I'm, I've got um, rain overalls, pretty warm jacket, and gloves. Yeah. yeah. I knew I should have bought my raincoat. No, that's, that's that's okay. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Now you've got your your quad bike in front of us. Obviously, a, um, a must-have on a farm. Uh, to a degree, yes, but 90% um, of the stock work on the place is done on horses. Yeah. So you're a pretty darn good rider as well. Yep. So this is the airstrip. The truck loads the manure into that bucket and the um, manure is inside the shed there. And he takes off and lands towards that, where that sheep is on the end of the airstrip there. So this is the airstrip in the um, area of Hiriheretau and we're in an area, it's, there's a huge... Um, fertiliser bin. Fertiliser bin. Yep. Fertiliser bin on the airstrip and I'm with Gary and uh, Pete. We're heading up to the top of this area. As you can hear, it's blowing southerly. Getting out of the wind. Getting out of the wind. And Gary will show you the uh, the boundaries of Hetty Hetty Tower. Okay, our boundaries on the left um, go up towards those cabbage trees. The three cabbage on, trees up there. On the skyline. Yes. Yep. And then they come down just behind this bush, uh, down that ridge, along the road, and then they cut up. Uh, most of those pine trees are part of Hiri Hiri Tau. Then we go down out of sight and then come back up on that main ridge. Yes. Which goes right along and disappears into the mist in the background there. Incredible. Yeah, so all that country you can see in front of us is part of the station. And so how many hectares would you would you guesstimate this would be? Uh, it's just over 2,100. 2,100 hectares. Which, um, how many effective, Gary? That'd be <laughs> 1,800 effective. Yep. What yeah. does that mean, 1,800 effective? It's the effective grassed area, so you've got grass and then you've got scrub. Oh. Native bush. Yeah. So that's what, what we graze, so that's where the production comes from. So you, you break your farm down to a effective hectares. Which is the hectares that can be essentially used, like that are used. Correct, yeah. for, for cattle and for sheep. For cattle and sheep. Yeah, that, that's correct. 
Um, and Gary will run through the stock that we're um, carrying at the moment. Uh, at the moment, we're carrying 17,500 stock units, and it breaks down to 6,500 breeding ewes. Um, Are those big numbers? There. Yeah, they are the, uh, yeah. the big numbers for this area. Yeah. yeah. But the other Marion corporations are probably double the size of us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have. We aim for 570 breeding cows. Uh, those are a mix of Angus, Hereford, Children Cross. We've keep uh, about 250 yearling heifers and the same in steers. Uh, we also have a bull unit um, down behind the main homestead. What's a bull unit, Gary? A bull unit where we fatten Frisian bulls that we buy in. Frisian bulls that you buy in? Yeah. And you fatten them up? Yep. Fatten them up and send them to the works. Freezing works. Freezing works. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Not, not for mating purposes. No, no, no. These no. are trading bulls. Yep. We've decided to buy in and, and make a profit margin of um, sort of three hundred dollars a year, three fifty if we can. Um, and that's essentially to bolster our our cattle income. The, the sheep income is very good here. We, we probably shy a little bit with our cattle income, mainly because we've got a big cow herd. So any farm or station running a big cow herd, we, we can't uh, generate the finance of these um, intensive bull units. Mm, mm. So we're just starting a little one in the, in the country that um, Gary can look after, close to the homestead, and it's, um, it's bull tight, isn't it? Where the bulls can't get out yep. of there. So how many bulls would you... Would you put in the bull unit to fatten up. Um, now when you say fatten up, Gary, do you mean just um, like feed them a lot? Yes, yeah, feed yeah. yeah, grass feed. Grass feed. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Get, get them up um, and kill them to about 300 kilos carcass weight. Wow. This last year just gone, we've done 128% um, lambing and 98% calving. Yeah. And could you give us a definition of what lambing and calving is, Pete? The lambing percentage is uh, based on used to the ram, and then we go to a scanning percentage. So that's lambs docked from used scanned, and heri heri to, it's heri heri to, remember, <laughs> is um, um, the medium term plan is 135%. Um, so we're some way to go there, but we're confident that we'll get there with the type of sheep that Gary's running now and, and under his management. And on the calving side, Hedy Hedy Toe has always performed. If we can get 90% calving, we're happy. So, as you can see, I mean, it's um, exposed to the south a lot of this country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's cold, and um, we do get a few lamb losses through lambing. Um, but the farm actually drops over that ridge into a lovely valley, which we can't get out there today. Yeah, no, it's that's a bit fine. Muddy, yep. Um, which is a little bit more protected. And as I was saying, the the Aitchison block is is more of a northerly aspect, so it's it's much warmer. And that's where Gary lambs his early ewes to the terminal ram, so they go to a blackface ram, and they're killed um, before Christmas to the works. Um, and you've got 1,800 there? 1,800, yep. So um, he'll market um, probably 2,000 lambs before uh, Christmas off those lambs, yeah. Gary runs a pretty lean and mean ship here with (laughs) with his staff, so Gary can run through his staff. What kind of team does it take to to run to do what you do? Um, We have three permanent staff members, which is myself, my head shepherd, Paul Tiahu. Um, one of our permanent shepherds um, has just left, so we're in the process of replacing him. Yep. And 
then I bring in casual help to help out during the busy times of the year. What are the peak times of the year? I mean, obviously it's mahi. I mean, it's work right through the year, but is there a particular season where it's pretty hard out? Uh, from October, I would say from October through to March. October to March? Pretty, pretty, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Sort of 24-7, really. <laughs> now, Gary, we're, we're standing at um, the airstrip. Now, tell us about the airstrip. I found it quite interesting. I thought you were just, it was just a play on names, but planes do actually land up, up where we are. Yep. What do the, what, and what do they do? Well, we're standing beside the uh, fertiliser bin. Yes. Um, the truck below us there, it drives in the front doors, fills up that bucket, uh, backs around behind the bin, and the plane will come in and land... And it'll turn around over towards where Peter's parked the Toyota. Yep. The pilot will flip a lid in the top of the plane and the driver will drop that chute inside the um, hopper of the plane, pull a lever, and the fertiliser will come out of the bucket, fill the plane up, the truck drives out the road and the plane takes, takes off. off. And if you're standing here, he actually drops... Completely out of sight when he gets to the end. <laughs> so it's like like yeah. that, like. And then cool. he he'll come up, and yeah, just puts it on the parts of the farm that we've got designated for 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 this year here. Yeah. And but but are you a, you're not a pilot, are you? No, no. So you haven't quite. So who does that? Is that part of the staff at um at Hedito <coughs> that does the plane? No, the plane but, is um, farmers here from Gisborne. And they take they take about two ton per flight. And when Gary was saying it's an aircraft carrier, our airstrip, he was referring to the length of it. It's probably a little bit short, and we're looking to upgrade that uh, for safety purposes. Now, where we are, in terms of where the sheep and the cattle graze, do they graze in this particular area that that we're standing at? I don't often graze stock up here on the airstrip, because when it's wet, they just march up and down and make ruts and um, makes it uneven for the plane. Yeah, but all this land you can see in front of us, you can see these cattle spread through these paddocks in front. Those hills over behind us, we've been rotating our mixed-age ewes through about nine paddocks over there. The farm itself, as you see it today, is, is moving into its winter working clothes. So you see it under pressure today. We're um, running out of grass. Um, <laughs> I would suggest the overall dry matter, Gary, would be under 1,200 kegs to the yep. hectare. So we're, we're moving into a feed deficit position. And um, we're just at the start of the winter, so um, come August um, we're going to be very short and the stock are going to be under pressure. And so how do you handle these types of situations? And you probably be, you prepare for them? That's why we're putting on some DAP. <laughs> What's DAP, um, Gary? It's a form of uh, nitrogen, so we're trying to create an early spring, get a bit of grass growth in front of us. Might be a bit late now, Pete, with the ground temperature. Yeah, hopefully we'll get something out of it. Yeah, and I think it will respond once it warms up in August. <coughs> we'll get some good good response from the nitrogen. Plus this yellow stuff on the ground here, it's it's sulphur. That's the other. Yeah, part I was going to say. We're looking at and. Um, and DAP, of course, has also got phosphate in it, and that's that brown stuff. And that helps to... Yeah, and that, that helps. The three elements working together um, create a, um, uh, hopefully, a grass response in August. But it's all reliant on, on soil temperature, and I'd say at the moment the soil temperature up here would be um, cruising to 10 or 8 <coughs> degrees, so... And it needs seven um, degrees to create grass growth or clover growth. Well, if we carry on round, we come off that high point in the skyline there. Yes. Um, it drops down into a, the big basin that Peter was talking about. It goes up uh, to that high point up there, goes along a ridge, and then there's another ridge drops down out of sight. <clears throat> and then we come up. Way down that gully, there's some cabbage trees on the face. We come up the other side, and then all that land you can see right in front of us there is all part of Hedi Hedi except that Razorback Ridge 
heading towards the ocean, it's the neighbours. Mm. So as the farming manager here, Gary, does your day-to-day um, work involve going out to those areas yep. on the quad bike? and? Yep, quad bike, horses, wherever... Um, what we've got planned for the day or the next couple of days, yeah, we just go to whichever part of the farm um, that stock movements are being done. Yeah. Um, yeah, most of the farm would get covered within the stage of a, a week. A week. You just come around the corner here, Justin, you can see the South Pole down there, <laughs> and Hawke Bay. Yeah. So that's how exposed we are. Yeah, on the airstrip. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but if it was a fine day, you'd you'd be able to see Mahia Peninsula. I can actually. Oh, beautiful! Yes. I can actually just see the top of it, way in the distance, in the mist. Yep. And yeah, if it was a bit clearer, you'd see Portland Island as well. Pretty nice office, Gary. Yeah, on a fine day (laughs) it is. Yeah. Kia ora, Pākehā, Pete McKenzie and Gary Watson, part of the team that oversees Hedehede Tau Farm in Whakaki. We'll be profiling the remaining two finalists in the sheep and beef farming categories in upcoming months. So tell me, Justine, what did you learn as part of that tour? <laughs> yes, warm clothing, a hat, um, raincoat, rain pants... Um, would make a, very, a, a more pleasurable experience on a farm. Māori representation onto the Auckland Super City Council structure shifted into third gear this week as a series of parliamentary subcommittee hearings began at Orakei Marae in Auckland. That follows a decision by the current government to scrap the Māori seats and do away with the seven Auckland councils. Over the next few weeks, MPs will hear a number of public submissions. As one of the iwi directly affected by the loss of Māori seats on councils, Ngāti Whātua have been vocal in their protest. For many years, right up until his death in 2006, Sir Hugh Kāwharu publicly represented Ngāti Whātua interests. In this recording from 1983, he gives us the lowdown on Auckland, Tāmaki Makaurau, through Ngāti Whātua eyes. It was an island over which Ngāti Pāua exercised mana. They were the tangata whenua. If this were the case, then I'd have no doubt at all that some reference would be made in the mihi to the uh, mana and the rights of Ngāti Pāua. What is it that whispers here? The wind from the north, the north wind. Look, it brings the white nautilus. I will find what we seek in the north. And then the carved slabs of the house will stand at Waitemata. That is my dream. This song by Titai, according to Ngati Fatua of Auckland, led to the founding of New Zealand's second capital. The survivors of Te Uri O Hau, Tao U, Ngati Pawa, and Ngati Fatua met at Okahu early in 1840 to decide whether it was worthwhile settling permanently on the war devastated Auckland Isthmus. During the night, the Tohunga Titai sang that song in a trance. The debate over Waiheke Island continues. Tamaki Makoda, land of a hundred lovers, indefensible militarily and exposed to the whims and desires of those over centuries and not least the present. Ahika, Tau, and Ahimatao are residual rules in Māori land tenure which established an abstract nexus of rights both individual and communal. Professor Hugh Kafaru, Head of Anthropology and Māori at Massey University, is descended from the tribes of Auckland and here tonight discusses traditional modes of Māori rights through conquests and residence starting with the period before 1840. 
Tamaki, Makoto and the Isthmus were areas much sought after, something of a gateway between Northland and South Auckland. It was also an area very rich in uh, soils and uh, marine life and not least birds. In fact, the fish were so succulent and so abundant that uh, Ngāti Whātua referred to this part of their tribal district in terms of being able to eat the fish bones and all. But that really wasn't the reason for Ngāti Whātua's incursion into the isthmus, uh, as I understand our history at least. It was simply in response to what was known as or recalled by our people as a as a series of murders. Anyway, it was an Utu thing that caused Ngāti Whātua to uh, come down to square off accounts with the overlord of the Isthmus at that time, and I'm talking about the mid-18th century, Kiwi Tāmaki and his Waiohua people, whose principal fort, not the only one, but the principal fort was uh, One Tree Hill, Maunga Kiakia. So there were a series of, uh, of battles involving uh, a number of the southern hapu of Ngāti Whātua, principally among them the Te Tao hapu of the southern Kaipara. And the outcome of a series of battles, the last of which took place on the slopes of Mount Mangere, was the extinction of the Waiohua people as a people and uh, the taking of their place in the isthmus by, uh, by Ngāti Whātua. And of the various Ngāti Whātua hapū that had taken part in the, uh, in the battles, the Tatao were the ones who remained uh, in occupation. And it was this conquest plus occupation which eventually gave them title in the Māori land court to the Orake block of some 700 acres in the middle of the 19th century. So Tatao established themselves, first of all, uh, on Maunga Kiokia, and then uh, later in the lower lands, particularly at Onihunga and uh, across, directly opposite, at Mangere. The, uh, the Tatao people then had, by the turn of the, uh, of the 19th century, uh, established themselves at Onihunga and Māngere in terms of their principal settlements. But you asked about um, the concept of the fire, uh, the ahi, ahika. If one can equate that with the concept of mana, authority and political control, then I suppose one could say that Ngāti Whātua and of the Ngāti Whātua people as a whole, the Tatao, would have exercised mana, would have exercised ahika over an area extending down from Helensville uh, along the foothills of the Waitakides to somewhere around Cornwallis on the northern shores, northwestern shores of the Manuko, across to around about where the airport is, and around the, uh, the northern part of uh, the southern shore of the Manuko, to the portage at Otahuhu, and uh, skirting Mount Wellington to the vicinity of uh, Achilles Point and across to North Head and up East Coast Bays to Mahurangi. Now, that of course is not all of the Tāmaki Isthmus, so the, um, the Waitakere to begin with uh, remained in the occupation of the uh, Kawero people, a small Tainui origin people. Several sections of the Tainui people on the southern part of the Manuko, uh, South Head 
and around to Waiuku, of course, and up to the vicinity of, of the airport, as I've said. On the other side, say from uh, Papakura up to the Tamaki Estuary, both sides of the Tamaki Estuary, uh, around in, out into the uh, Tamaki Strait, uh, Motutapu, uh, Waiheke and other islands in the Gulf, and to some extent the coast, uh, the East Coast Bays, I said, were, were part of uh, Tatao territory, but this was shared or disputed, depending which way you look at it, between Ngati Power and Ngati Fatua. Anyhow, what I'm saying is that the Tamaki uh, Isthmus uh, was carved out, if you like, among these three tribal groups. But the, the bulk of the isthmus uh, involving the two harbors, the Waitamata, what is now Auckland City in suburbs, and the Manuko, were under the mana as from the middle of the 18th century uh, of Ngāti But we're talking about a pretty small population in comparison with uh, modern times, of course. And the the when we talk about ahi, the the concept of ahi, ahi ka, I think this has to be seen in the general context of the, of what might be called the political economy. There's the principal settlement of the Tao people, which probably served them as uh, the main base for operations right throughout the two harbors. So that one would find evidence in uh, Maryland court evidence, for instance, uh, some archaeological evidence, and certainly in, in verbal histories, of Ngāti occupation of most of the bays around the Waitamata Harbour, and many of them, uh, many bays on the northern shores of the Manuko. Places that would be used in a, a rotational sort of basis, depending on uh, the capacity of the resources, the ecology, to sustain gardening operations and fishing operations, shell fishing and uh, fishing with line and net. So that the Ngāti Whātua people would, uh, say, take Okahu Bay uh, as a, a base for, for fishing in the Waitamata Harbour. And to sustain them in their fishing operations, uh, they would probably um, plant a number of acres. There's evidence from around about 1820 onwards of uh, a widespread use of, of uh, potatoes. So they plant potatoes in this area, as I say, to sustain them in their, uh, in their fishing operations. But it wasn't a permanent settlement, and they would probably shift from one place to another, resting the soil, resting the fishing grounds. I'm Mariah Rakaraku, and that was Ngāti Whātua Hugh Kāwharu in a recording from 1983. Now, when he died in 2006, I had a Michael Jackson experience, Justine. What was your experience? Well, you know how the lanes were closed off for Michael Jackson's funeral convoy to Los Angeles? Yes. That's what they did when we travelled as part of Hugh Kāwharu's procession from Ōrāke to Kaipara. Huge tangi. Well, they closed down the lanes. Hmm. So how long did it take you to get to you? Uh, it took us ages, but what was eerie was that there was no other traffic there apart from our funeral procession with all our lights on. Mm, eerie. Yep. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Mariah Rakraku, and you're listening to Te Ahika on Radio New Zealand National. Evelyn Kawati feels ripped off. For years, the Ngāti Hine Ngāti Pirau woman has felt a little insecure and saddened that te reo Māori is not her first language. And she's poured all of that emotion into a series of drawings called Lost Voices. Mariah finds out more. Ko Evelyn Martha Kawati toku ingoa. Ko Teruki Kawati o Kutupuna. 
ko maihi parone, ko te riri maihi, ko te tāwai, ko te wātane, toku papa, ko ema pani, toku whaia. Ko waiamea te rohe, toku rau te maunga, tau marare te awa. Te rāpunga te marae, media te wharenui. That is my whakapapa. So let's just explain the drawings, Evelyn. You saw photographs of some of the students at native schools in the 1800s, and then you... Well, when I looked at them, I look, when I look at something, as an artist, I'm looking at what's behind it. And I think, now, what are they thinking? And how do they feel? Because when you look at their faces, they're not exactly happy. Um, but then you can't judge why, they're ha- unhappy, why their faces are unhappy. There could be many reasons. But I always think, well, what is that little boy thinking about? And how did he feel when he was dressed up in those clothes? And... Uh, wonder what his his time at school was like and did he have a nanny that he loved and I'm sure he did and uh, what did she say to him before he went to school? Did he want to go to school or was he made to go to school? Because when you think about it, uh, <clears throat> when I read some of the little stories from the from those pupils in that book, some of them, some of the um, children uh, said that they were punished when they went home for speaking English, and they're punished when they went to school for speaking Māori. So, you know, a lot of lot of things would have been going on in their lives, their little lives, to have to cope with. To me, they were the first people, first little people, to have been made to do something against their will. They were made to speak English. <laughs> so, uh, and their parents and grandparents at home would have said, "Yes, you're going to school to learn that." That Pākehā stuff, you've got to go and learn it. And, of course, they may have protested. Who knows how, how they felt. But when I look at a photograph like that, I like to know what's, what's behind, the, what, behind the face, the story behind the face. I look further. I, I look deeply and further. And that's what comes out when I start to draw. I've, I've drawn on all my ex- years of living and um, my experiences while I was growing up too. And I put that into my drawing. And if we just look at the drawings, I mean, the kids are depicted in dress that you, you know, you recognise as being of their era. They are either in clothes that are a little bit too big for them or yes. too little. And I guess that speaks to the thing of, you know, first up, best dressed. <laughs> I would say, yes. And um, most of them are barefooted. Most of them are barefooted. Mm. Well, a lot of us were barefooted when yes. we went to primary school and f- thought nothing of it. Although my mother dressed us in shoes and socks, but a lot of them came to school with bare feet and 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 uh, lunch in their newspapers. And I was always intrigued because I felt like I was a Pakia Maori amongst all the others. Um, I, I just had that funny feeling. I thought, blimey, I look a little bit uh, more dressed than the others. And I was at, always wanted to have their lunch, and I didn't want mine, because inside that that newspaper would be some rewana bread <laughs> made by a nanny. And I see, and I'm probably the other end of that. My nanny lived with us for a bit, and she would always make parawa rewana. And when we were at home, we would be scoffing it because you could smell it as it was wafting through the house. But I used, always used to feel so shy taking it to school because we never had flash white bread sandwiches with luncheon in them. We always had prawariwana with gold syrup. And I, I used to feel so fakama, you know, because we'd unwrap it in the old, um, well, it wasn't newspaper, it was the old bread paper. Yes, yeah. And oh, we used to feel so fucking mad that um, yeah, that we were getting judged at being, you know, at being perhaps too Maori. Which brings me to this question, Evelyn. I mean, how much of your identity do you think is wrapped up with an ability or inability to call it all Maori? Uh, <clears throat> I would say I'm at I'm I'm I'm, I'm sitting on a cusp. Because that's how I felt. 
when you see all these little ex see and feel these experiences, I was neither one nor the other. I was just sitting in the middle. So my identity is kind of in the middle. When I choose things, I feel quite happy being in mainstream and I feel happy being in my, uh, te, reo, uh, te Ao Māori. I'm happy in both worlds. But then am I really happy because it's something I still don't know? <laughs> well, that can be rectified. I can um, go to school and learn, which I have been trying to do and I have done. Uh, yes, I, I feel like I'm in the middle. It's a good place to be. But then do you feel that um, a person's identity is only shaped by their ability to court it or in their language? Or do you think it's shaped by other things as well? It's shaped by other things as well. Like? I wouldn't know I wouldn't know because I can't I don't have the the full the I don't possess the full beauty of Te Reo Māori because I I haven't um experienced the speaking of it fully. So other things have impacted me and things such as listening to my dad, listening to the history. Time after time after time. Going to Marae, going to Hui with him. Meeting people is something I love doing, is meeting people and talking to them. Talking to people, talking to Māori people, all ages, from babies, from young children, right through to queer and kaumatua. That's what's enriched me. And I'm not going to say instead of. It's enriched me... Um, as much as I would be enriched if I had to do if I had to do Maori as well, oh, I'd be complete. Because you're not complete until you do have that. What about your own children, Evelyn? Do they call it Maori, or have they learned to do Maori? No, none of them do. I've got three. Uh, none of them call it Maori at all. I um, fell into in the gaps for some reason or other. I um, <coughs> they were they were brought up and they were raised their ages um, weren't quite the age for kohanga reo, I kind of missed missed it, it's just the way it is, so when kohanga reo came along they were a little bit old to go into they were about 19 year olds and I tried um, sending them to one kohanga reo the experience wasn't that great so um, it was just forming and it's fantastic now and if I had my babies now well they just fall into it naturally, and I'd send them there. But of course, I was a bit. <clears throat> I wasn't happy with with it then. They went to kindergarten. Um, as for total immersion, <clears throat> Kura Kopa for Māori was wasn't around when when they were, were were born. It wasn't around when I was at Queen Victoria's School, so I kind of missed it all. <laughs> missed missed the bus all along the way. That's not to say that you you don't give up. And so it's journey that I'm on. My next thing is to go and go back and learn learn to do Māori via the Atarangi method because it's the only way it can be learned. Actually, why do you say that, Evelyn? Um, advice from my one of my aunties, my dad's sister. She said the only way you can learn is through uh, total immersion, and I agree because when I started. Classes, as my babies were born, I'd go up to night class. There was one at the local college, and my friend and I would go there. Taught by good teachers, but it was bilingual. Always when you've got English in there, it's not going to stick. So, um, unbeknown to me, I didn't have Kurukopa for Māori classes then, at all. That would have been 1979. Yeah, no, there were no classes. Kōhana no. was still... Kohana yes. was just about to erupt. Yes, exactly. Mm. Uh, and I, I was searching even then. So I'd go to this class, uh, this school and that school. I went to Tom Raw's class at Tiara Potama, and <laughs> uh, I'm not sure it was 1990. I absolutely loved it. But even there, there was English and Maori. He's he's a fabulous teacher, I've got to say. So you know, the brain, the teacher at um, at the local college, Aurelia College, said to me, she was Pakia teacher actually. She said the brain starts to get a little bit harder and um, as you get older, naturally, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> so, it's a bit harder for, the, for something to stay in there. So 
um, I quite agree with all, all of what we've said, so that's my next call. Evelyn, do you think that... Um, yes. Do you think that a person who doesn't have te reo Māori in their, in their attempts to learn te reo Māori, um, that it affects them in terms of how they view things Māori completely... If they say they go to a course, they have a negative experience there. I mean, do you think that affects them in terms of how they view things overall that are associated with things Māori? I don't think so. I think if your heart is Māori, whatever is lacking in the in the um, educating of yourself along the way, it wouldn't make any difference. Because if your heart is right, and you really want to know who you are. And why you're doing it, it shouldn't make any difference. In my experience, anyway, I'll never give up. Evelyn Kawiti, no Nati Parau, me Nati Hine. Now, one of Evelyn's tupuna is Teruki Kawiti of Rua Pika Pika fame. Next week, she'll be talking about him. Now, he's credited with being perhaps one of the most significant military strategists. Anaira, we're me bearable, no te rarawa, me nasirokawa with this week's Fakatauki. Tu ake, stand forever. Uh, to me, tu ake means to be proud of who you are, um, be proud um, in your own culture, and also be proud of um, how you got to where you are and. Um, those gone on before you and uh, regardless whether you're Māori or not regardless of you know age and and where they're from yeah it's just about being proud of of where you've come from and um, you know proud of your culture proud of your heritage and proud of this country yeah Kia ora no mato ki te mutunga a te ahika. He mihi tēnei ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Ki nga kai rā wikiwiki mihi ni kia ora rā. Hoki mai anō atira wiki i tēwi. Mauri ora tātou katoa.